recall that when the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, there was Judah that was trying to make an effort to obey God still. And there was Samaria, or Israel, and they had explained away their need to obey. And it really all boiled down to the fact that they were afraid, since they were no longer one with Judah, they were afraid that if their people down in Samaria had to go up to Judah, to the temple, that somehow they would lose them. They would lose their allegiance. They didn't want that. Amen? So they said, let's just set up a little house of worship here in Dan and Bethel. This will be good enough. You don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but let me put this in, in natural vernacular. Okay, these, this church out here, let's say this, what's it called, Mark? House of Prayer back here. We've, we're somewhat friends, but let's imagine that God is doing a work in House of Prayer, and we'll exclude us from the picture here. And then there's also New Covenant Jerusalem Church down the way, and God is doing a work over there. And what, what happens to House of Prayer when the Lord says, in order for you to continue, you can have meetings over here, but on a regular basis, you all need to go over there and meet with New Covenant Jerusalem Church as well. House of Prayer gets very nervous. They're all excited about what God's doing at New Covenant Jerusalem Church, but they get nervous because they're afraid if their people go all the way up to Jerusalem, that the, the, they're going to get embroiled in the politics of, of Judah. Does that make sense? And that's what was happening in Samaria. They had had a political division. They were divided politically. And they were afraid if the people of Samaria went up to Jerusalem to worship, they were going to get reunited politically. And they were going to be pulled into the politics of Judah. Does that make sense? They didn't want that. And so they said, well, what we're going to do is we're just going to set up a halfway house. We're going to set up something here in Dan and Bethel. And if you can just be happy here, you can serve God here. You don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. Just serve him here, and we'll be all right. Amen. And this is what becomes known in the Old Testament as the sin of Jeroboam. Because Jeroboam was the king who, who had this brilliant plan. He was a man a gifted and incredibly anointed, called of God. If you read... The calling of Jeroboam, it's, it's a powerful calling. The Lord was actually calling Jeroboam because Judah was in sin. Amen? Those who were reigning in Jerusalem were in sin. The descendants of Solomon, they were in sin. And the Lord called Jeroboam. Jeroboam said, I'll be your man. And he started to do God's will, but then he got competitive. And... We know that after this happens, after this is going on for a little bit, the prophets of Judah come together and they tell one of their own, one of the young prophets there, they say, we need you to go down and bring the word of God to the people of Samaria. But they know that this is a dangerous place. 
Amen. They know this is on shaky ground and anything can happen. So they tell this young man, this prophet, we want you to go straight down there. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Eat nothing, drink nothing. Just go down there, bring the word, turn around and come back. They didn't want him to get embroiled in the dynamics, the spiritual dynamics of Samaria, the politics of Samaria. I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. How many in this place know who Nietzsche was? Okay, good. Well, again, I'm not going to try to give his biography in a couple seconds here. German philosophy, I mean, you could start listing off the dozen most famous philosophers in the world, and Germany would have the majority over all the other nations. And of all the German philosophers, Nietzsche is the greatest. He is the most read. He is the most taught. He is the most loved world over. But Nietzsche believed basically that life was a struggle of the strongest trying to overcome the weakest. He believed that basically it was his version, it was the, the seed thought for the survival of the fittest. He believed that just like with a plant, you only save the seeds from the strongest plants. And you only plant the best tree saplings, whatever you want to call them. He said he believed it was the same in all areas of life. He thought that the most disgusting thing in the world was what Jesus typified when he said, whoever wishes to be the greatest should be the servant of all. He thought that, that pity and as such mercy were the most detestable attributes of human nature. And he called Jesus, I'm using my English for his German, but that disgusting, weak Jew. He couldn't stand the thought that people would intentionally help and protect and honor and include the weak elements of society. He believed that that was us picking from the wrong seed of the plant and therefore perpetuating a weak humanity. And he blamed Christianity as the problem. He said Christianity and Judaism had created this inverted value system that taught us to hate the things we should love. Basically, the instincts, the, the, the instincts of a natural man are innately good because they are for life. They are for, for sexuality. They are for self-protection and violence, but they are for life. And things of self-denial and restraint, he concluded, were of death. Does that make sense? And so as my dad would say, he 
taught on the re-evaluation of values. And he set about to create a culture, and again I use his terms, where thoughts become will, and will becomes action. And this action culminates in the will to power, as the title of one of his books states. Significantly, when the Nazis conquered uh, France, they translated Nietzsche into the French language, and the Nazi government passed out his books in mass to the French people. And it was really the resurgence of Nietzsche. He took root in France better than he had in his own country, some could say. Amen. And after the war, he was rehabilitated, his anti-Semitism anti was cleaned up and, and translated out of him, amen, and, and everybody began to worship him. He was a brilliant man, incredibly brilliant man, amen. But he believed that Christianity was killing life because it inhibited the will. Now, obviously, Jesus is the only one who taught what he taught. When had everybody, any, anyone ever said, whoever wishes to be the greatest should become the servant of all? When had anyone ever said, if he slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, or the left cheek, turn to him, the right also? When had anyone said, love your enemies, not just your friends? Jesus came and inverted, turned upside down the world that people were accustomed to. How many remember when we taught on, second, on 1 Corinthians 2 recently? That which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. Good, okay. All right, this is the, the chapter that follows that up. And so he's just talked about this spiritual reality that exists, that he doesn't want us to miss. And then he says this in the third chapter. And I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife... Can everybody say jealousy and strife? Okay, since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? So when Paul wants to sum up what defines our Adamic nature, our sin, he just calls it jealousy and strife. It's interesting, isn't it? For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men. That would almost sound like an excuse. Come on, I'm just a mere man. But Paul's using it as an accusation. Why are you being a mere man? Because they're not supposed to be mere men. Mere men don't have the power to lay down their lives in love. But we're, we are supposed to have been born of the Spirit of God that gives us the power and the grace to be more than mere men. We don't take credit for what we do by His Spirit. 
But we can't do anything good except by his spirit. Amen? So he doesn't think that mere men is an excuse. He thinks it's an accusation. He says, for you, and he says that you're fleshly because you're still, you have jealousy and strife and you're acting like mere men. Now, how does, what was this jealousy and strife? What did it look like? Here. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? When one says, I am of Judah, and the other says, I am of Samaria, when one says, I am of this group, and another says, I'm of that group, you're acting like mere men. That is the, the number one dynamic of this world. It's competition. It's my will to power in conflict with your will to power. What it all boils down to is just how much am I willing to do in order to gain that power? And how much are you willing to do? Whoever is willing to do more is going to succeed. And whoever is going to be limited by the values that Nietzsche hated is going to fail, at least in this world and its model. He says, how are you acting like we're men? You say, one says, I am of Apollos, and another says, I am of Paul. He said, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? He said, don't include us in this competition. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each. I planted Apollos water, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. See, what, what Nietzsche didn't take into account is that people can be changed. Do you understand? That our course is not predestined. I may have been born to be dense, but I can become sharp. I may have been born like a bull in a china shop and insensitive, but through discipline, character can overcome nature and I can become sensitive. I may have been born as the runt in the litter, but through the power of God, I can be more than a mere man. And if you lose that power, if you lose, if there is no such thing as change by regeneration, then Nietzsche makes perfect sense, brothers and sisters. But don't forget that he paved the way for Nazism. He made perfect sense. He was their prize philosopher. They passed him out to the conquered people to inculcate in them the mindset that was already in Germany. He was the one who coined the phrase, the Aryan race, the blonde beast. He was the one. Amen. So then, he says, I planted Apollos water, but God caused the growth. This isn't natural selection. This is supernatural change. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, 
but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which, was, which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man works, if any man's work which he has built remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as one coming through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? So his whole concept is, I know you're carnal and you can't get what God wants to give you because you're mere men and you're competitive. You're jealous and competitive. Amen? He says, this is how you're competitive. You call yourself of Apollos and you call yourself of Paul and you don't realize that the only foundation is the foundation of Jesus, but you are that building. Amen? You're the temple of God. Paul is a builder. Apollos is a builder. But you are supposed to be the temple of God, he says. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now listen to me. What happens if this one temple starts saying, one brick says, I want to be over here, and another brick says, no, I want to be over there? What happens? The temple starts to come apart. There's a peace in Jerusalem, and then there's a peace in Dan, and there's a peace in Bethel. But the temple comes apart. And he says, that is to destroy the temple of God. To allow competition to rise up inside of you. To not recognize it for what it is and put it to death. Is to destroy the temple of God. Because it's separating people from people, and the people make up the temple. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are, he says. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Self-denial does not make sense. Laying down your life in love does not make sense. Turning the other cheek does not make sense. Saying that whoever wishes to be the greatest should be the servant of all, that does not make sense. It is not the wisdom of this age. Do you understand? And competition makes great sense. Je- jealousy and rivalry, it's in our blood. From the slaying of Abel, jealousy and competition has been what it's all about. It's what business is about. It's what fashion and appearance is about. It's what mass marketing and purchasing is about. It's what education and prestige is about. 
It's all a competition. It's all a rivalry. It's all me pulling on the same rag that you're pulling on. To see whether I get the long end and you get the short end. It's all a competition. And Paul is saying something clear here. He's saying, if you don't watch out, mere men, if you just let your, your natural instincts take you where they would, you're going to destroy the temple of God because your competition is going to make you say, I'm of this one and I'm of that one. You're going to rip apart the temple of God. And whoever destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. He says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, if you think you've figured it out, you've figured out how this is going to work, but you're doing it on the paradigms, on the basis of natural paradigms, the paradigms of this world. He says, if any man thinks he is wise, according to the wisdom of this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. I want to submit to you that of the two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this world can be defined as self-protection. You think about it. That's what it is. It's competition at its core self-protection. I heard that rattlesnakes are learning not to rattle in the central Texas area when they are surprised because hogs have become so prolific and they eat rattlesnakes that rattlesnakes have learned not to make such a noise that could attract hogs. I want you to tell me what kind of wisdom is that that taught the rattlesnake not to rattle. The only kind of wisdom that you're going to see in a fallen nature is self-preservation. What was the wisdom that birthed the computer? It was Nazi Germany's enigma machine. It was war. It was self-preservation. What was the wisdom that split the atom and got the revelation of nuclear power? Was it the, the thousands of Africans or millions of Africans without electricity? Is that what brought it about? What is the driving motor of the wisdom of this age? It is self-protection. What was it? What brought, the, what brought that, the breakthrough? It was war. We didn't want to be extinguished. We didn't want to be wiped off the face of the earth. And Paul says... That wisdom that is so inculcated into our thinking and our psyche that it's first nature. <laughs> you must become foolish in that wisdom if you would ever become wise in the wisdom of Christ. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their own craftiness. Think about that for a second. 
He catches the wise in their own craftiness. What that means is their expertise, their craftiness, that is their triumph over their foe, that craftiness becomes a bigger foe and it catches them. That's what competition does to us. Abel is easily conquered, but that dynamic that I had to call forth from it within to conquer him will end up conquering me. Abel is dead, but the murderer is alive, and I can't conquer him. That's competition. That's the wise being caught in their own wisdom, their own craftiness. Their wisdom becomes their snare. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that it is useless. So then, let no one boast in men. His whole conclusion is to say, stop separating yourself. Stop boasting and you're with this group and you're with that group. Stop setting up competitions to see who can win. Your Lord came and was stripped naked, was spat upon, was whipped in the face, was pummeled with the fist, was slandered and lied about. And everything they expected him to do He did the opposite. He had escaped the dynamic that holds us in its snare, the dynamic of self-preservation that really is its own great, our own greatest threat. Let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ to God. Amen. Stop grasping. Stop competing. Stop trying to achieve. Paul says to us what Jesus said to the brother of the prodigal. Amen. He says, everything I have is yours. You have everything. When you have the God who is the fountain of life from whom every good and perfect gift comes, the God who formed the world, if you just have him, be patient and everything you long for will come to pass. But if you get in the rat race and you start competing in arm wrestling, you get in a spitting match you're going to lose. You're going to be caught in your own craftiness. Let's go to James. Again, we're speaking of wisdom. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his gentle, meek humility and his good behavior. Look at this. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds done in the gentleness or meekness or humility 
of wisdom. Is that how you would describe? Somebody comes up to you and says, "Brother, define wisdom." You say, "Well, I'll give you three things that are images of wisdom: humility, gentleness, and meekness." Is that how you think of wisdom? Everything about the world says, if I want to be wise, I got to outsmart. I got to outperform. I've got to outdo you. That's the wisdom of this world. That's it. It's competition. But the wisdom of Christ is a complete inversion. Look at Jesus. Here he is. Look at all the times in his ministry when it seems that everything is lost. Remember when he, in John 6, when he, gave, when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the whole crowd of approximately 20,000 people left him. And yet when this happens, he doesn't go into the situation room and start trying to work out a different strategy. He's not worried about it. Put yourself in his shoes, please. Imagine that you have discipled 12 men for three and a half years. And that the whole thing is contingent upon them receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, but they haven't yet. But you want a revolution to begin that will change the face of mankind for all eternity. You want the single, the single most important event in human history, as even secular historians will tell you. You want that to ramify as a revolution spreading like wildfire around the globe. And so you look at these 12 men who have not yet even gotten the Holy Spirit and you say, it is important that I go away or else the Holy Spirit will never come. Which one of us would say that? You start a church of 12 people and this is the only Christians on the whole planet. And you say to yourself, it's important that I leave quickly. No, you say the opposite. You say it's important that I stay here and hold this up and protect this and keep this going or else the comforter will never come. Why do you say that and why does he say what he said? Because you think and I think that it's all going to happen by our achievement. When we triumph, when we finally work hard enough and get it to happen. And he realizes, unless the Lord builds a house, they who labor, labor in vain. He realizes, unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake all night in vain. He realizes this is God's project. This is God's ministry. This is God's purpose. And he is God's man. And his only responsibility is to stay humble and meek and gentle and obedient to God. This is not to say when God tells him something to do, he just says, oh no, Lord, it's all in your hands. But he trusts God, even when it seems impossible. Amen? Just before he died, he told him, all of you are going to leave me. You're all going to turn your backs on me and flee. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And yet he still did it. He still did what caused his most devoted followers to abandon him. He still went there willingly. Amen? They left him alone when he died on the cross. Just before he's about to ascend into heaven, the last words out of their mouth seem to me to say to him, Lord, we just want you to know we don't know why you came. He's about to go into heaven. 
And the last thing that they say to him is, Lord, is it at this time you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? They still had a natural kingdom. They wanted a revolution. (laughs) And they still want this. They're like, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does he say? It's not for you to know times and seasons, but go and tear in Jerusalem, and you're going to be clothed with power. It's not going to be the power of a political kingdom. Amen. But something's going to happen in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then into the uttermost ends of the earth. God is not just going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's going to restore his kingdom to the whole universe. And you can be part of it. It's expedient that I go away because I want the Holy Spirit to come. I don't want you leaning on me. I want you full of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? I'm trying to typify for you the wisdom of God. It's nothing like the wisdom of man. It's not motivated by the fears of man. Amen? It's not leaning on the abilities of man. Amen. It's motivated by the love of God. And it's leaning on trust in His abilities and His ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, says the Lord, so are my ways than yours. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Listen to James. This is verse 13 of 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds done in the gentleness and humility of wisdom. How do you show that you're wise? By humility. By not grasping for your rights as God, but recognizing God is the one and you're only gonna, your only part is to obey Him. This doesn't stand or fall by you. It's by Him and Him alone. Let Him show His wisdom by good behavior, His deeds done in the humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you see what He juxtaposes to God's wisdom, brothers and sisters? What does He contrast? He'll, by humility and gentleness, you show wisdom. But if you have... Cain at work in your heart if you have competition and jealousy. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Don't deny it. Don't try to cover it up. Recognize you haven't come to repentance and a true faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. But this wisdom is earthly, natural, and demonic. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? That this wisdom that's natural, that's earthly, is also demonic. Because who was the first great competitor? Where was competition born? Where did rivalry begin? When Lucifer, the second only to God, said, I should be like the Most High God. He was not content with his proper abode, as the apostle says, but he reached out and wanted to be something he was not. And he started to compete with God. He wanted to be like God. And he sold the same lie to Adam and Eve. He said, you will be like God's when you start competing like this. Instead, they were like the parents of murderers. That's what they were like. This selfish, ambitious, 
and jealous wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. There is disorder. You do not recognize and respect and abide by the order of God. And then every evil in the world today has hatched under the broody hen of selfish ambition and competition. Every evil has come out from under that broody hen. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, humble or gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. Turn the other cheek. Give freely. Full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Who has a Bible here that says the wisdom that is from above is willing to yield? Yeah. It's a proper translation of this. What does that say? Someone, we're both pulling on the same rag. The wisdom that's from above yields that rag because they're not defining their life by the rags that they've conquered. They're defining their life that they belong to Jesus and Jesus is theirs. That they have found love and that they have come to a place of trust in God for all these things over which everyone contends. Jesus said... Why did the Pharisees kill Jesus? Why did they hand him over? It says they handed him over because of envy. The Lord of glory was put to death because of competition. Not because they really thought he was wrong or he had made some mistake. He was put to death because they were Cain and he was able and they had a rock in their hand and they pummeled him with it. And there's a little bit of Cain in every single one of us. Amen? We think our task is to master the world. But the Lord spoke to Cain and said, Why are you downcast, Cain? If you do what is right, you will be accepted. But see now, sin crouches at your door. And its desire is to have you. That's that wise being caught in their own craftiness. You, it wants to consume you. It wants to make you. It's fodder for its fire. But you must master it. That's what we've got to conquer. We've got to conquer competition. Amen? We've got to master rivalry and jealousy. And the fear and distrust it gives birth to. Amen? All I want is your love. All I want is your mercy, your grace. Every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights. That's all I want. You see, you can do this with your gifts in the Spirit. With the gifts to serve. Everything can become a competition. Amen? Or it can become the wisdom of God that is meek, that is humble, 
that is gentle, that lays down its life in love.